Well, brethren, for the sermon today, I would like to go back to an event that occurred about 30 years ago. And that's before some of you were born. But it's also within the lifespan of many of us here. In 1988, at the Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, an American singer by the name of Whitney Houston sang a song, a very inspiring song, that actually became part of the soundtrack of the film about the Olympic Games. The song was entitled, One Moment in Time. One Moment in Time. If you've never heard it, go on the Internet and listen to it. It starts out very slow, builds to a crescendo, but... Uh, I started listening to it, and I had to listen to it again and again and again because it's a melody that gets with you, and it just stays with you. It was actually written for the Olympics. I didn't realize that when I first heard the song. But to, to identify with the song, you need to picture some runners striving for the finish line or swimmers struggling to get to the finish line or playing a basketball game or a hockey game, and they're, they're going all out to win their gold medals. And then picture them standing on their podiums up there with a, getting their gold uh, awards or their bronze or silver medals. And their heart was probably still beating at that time because they just achieved something. In Whitney Houston's moment of time, she was an actor, a model, and a singer who sold over 200 million records. That's quite a bit. Guinness Book of Records said that Whitney Houston was the most awarded female artist of all time. You might think she had it made. And yet she had a difficult marriage, went through a very public divorce, got into drugs, and drowned in a bathtub in Beverly Hills under the influence, apparently, of cocaine at age 49. You might say at the peak of her life. But what does this song have to do with you and with me today? Because this happened over 30 years ago. For you and me, our moment of time is right now. Our moment of time is right now. Because we live in a very momentous period of time. If you've been watching the news in the last couple of weeks. You know, the Middle East is heating up. Australia is burning up. The American political scene is boiling with a lot of steam. A lot of uncertainty in Europe and other places around the world. We're living in a very momentous period of time in history. You know, Whitney Houston was the product of and very much a part of this physical world. She was a product of this physical world and very much a part of it. She had many successes, many trials, but her life ended in tragedy. But she didn't know what you know. She was not given the opportunity that you and I have been given. She didn't have the hope that you and I have been given. I think there's something to think about. Her song was about believing in yourself. You can do it. You can do it. I can do it. 
Yet we've been called to believe in something that's bigger than ourselves. Something that's bigger than ourselves. And our future stretches on beyond this physical world. Because the song was about getting a medal in this physical world. Our opportunity goes way beyond this physical world. You and I are actually in a race with our destiny. Will we make that destiny? Again, our reward is not physical, but it's for all eternity. Brethren, as we go through the sermon this afternoon, I'd like you to think about your moment in time. What are you doing with your moment in time? I'd like you to think about what that means. I'd like you to ask yourself some questions. What are you doing with your moment in time at this momentous time in history? Are you grabbing a hold of what God is offering you? Or are you going to let it slip through your fingers? Are you grabbing a hold of it or are you letting it slip through your fingers? Will you walk off and leave it? Or will you hang on and not give up on it? Because the answers to these questions and your decisions are up to you. They're decisions that you make or don't make. I want to ask you a couple of more questions. Do you recognize and do you understand why you are here? Do you recognize and do you understand why you are here today with the living church of God? Now, the answer might be, well, you heard Dr. Meredith on television. Or maybe you heard Mr. Ames or Mr. Weston on television. Or you read the magazine or you came to maybe a TWP. Or you've read some booklets. Or perhaps you're here because your parents are here. See, why are you here? We could ask another question. Why is... Mr. Weston here? Why is Mr. Ames here? Why was Dr. Meredith here? Why am I here? Why are some of you here that have been around for decades? Chances are it's because we heard a man by the name of Mr. Herbert Armstrong on radio, on television. Perhaps we read the Plain Truth magazine or read some of the booklets that have been published in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and even up into the 80s. Mr. Armstrong died in 1986, which is, what, about 24 years ago, which is longer than you are old. But we're here, brethren, some of us old people, We're here because we believe that God used Mr. Armstrong to restore a knowledge of biblical truths and also to raise up the Philadelphia era of the church of God. That's what we believe. That's why we're here. But there are also critics that have very different ideas of Mr. Armstrong, very different ideas of the church of God. And I would encourage you to prove what it is that you believe so that you know, so that you know what it is that you believe. 
couple scriptures just to note in passing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21. Never heard that scripture when I was going to church in a Protestant church years ago. But 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says to prove all things, examine everything. Examine what you believe and ask yourself, why do I believe this? Is this the truth? Prove all things and hold fast. Hang on to what is right and what is true. And never let go of it. Never let go of it. Another scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, Be ready, be prepared to give an answer or a reason for the hope that is within you. you know, why are you here? Why aren't you someplace else? You need to know those things. Well, my parents are here and they'll give on, get on to me if, I don't, if I'm not here. That's not a good reason. <laughs> You've got to be here because you believe what the church teaches and what the Bible says. So you've got to nail these things down for yourself. It's got to be your beliefs, not mom and dad's belief or your friend's belief or your aunt's or uncle's belief. It's got to be what you believe because you've proven it to yourself. Mr. Armstrong, I want to talk about him just a little bit. In his moment of time, Mr. Armstrong, in his moment of time, was a mystery and a threat to Protestant Catholic theologians and churches. He was a mystery because they couldn't understand how this cult, preaching strange doctrines, could grow at about 30% a year for several decades. Why? Why did it happen? He was a threat in the sense that mainstream preachers could not, they could ridicule what he was teaching, but they couldn't disprove it from the Bible. Many of you may have gone to your pastor and said, what about this? And, well, I, I, I don't know or I can't explain that or we don't need to worry about that uh, because they couldn't come up with the answers. Now, some of you are younger, growing up in a church may not have that experience, but some of us have had those experiences going to a preacher and asking, what about this? Well, he's crazy, you know. Uh, Various excuses, but they didn't answer the question. Why do we keep Sunday instead of the Sabbath? Well, because. Uh, What happens when we die? Well, we go to heaven. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Well, that's what we believe. (laughs) It was interesting watching some preachers squirm whenever they were asked certain questions. Many of you have seen those things. But in his moment of time, he had an impact on the world. Again, I mention these things. We've got young people that have never seen Mr. Armstrong in person. They've never heard him speak. And yet when you look back at what he accomplished, he had an impact on the world He started the Radio Church of God, which became the Worldwide Church of God that grew into 150,000 people that came to the feast the last several years before he died. He started three colleges, one in Pasadena, one in uh, Big Sandy, Texas, and one in Brickwood, England. Three ambassador colleges. There were thousands of young people and a little bit older people. I think I was about 25, 26 when I came to Ambassador College. And there were a number of guys there my same age. 
You know, we'd been through college, I'd been through graduate school, but we, we came because of certain reasons of what was being taught. He was on radio and television, he met with world leaders, but in his moment of time, he had an impact on the world. You, know, you couldn't turn on a radio station back in the 60s without running into Mr. Armstrong two or three or four or five times that evening because he was just there, it was all over the place. There were booklets floating around at that time, Mr. Armstrong, Herbert W. Armstrong, Mr. Confusion. Another one was Herbert W. Armstrong, False Prophet. Now, he got some details wrong, but he got the big picture right. And we're watching that today. It was on a booklet entitled, Herbert W. Armstrong and His Wonderful World Tomorrow. Because he was talking about a coming kingdom of God, not floating off to heaven. He had an impact, and church grew at that time. Today is our moment of time. It's a moment of time for you. It's a moment of time for me. And I'd just like you to ask and think about, do you recognize what you've been called to be part of? Do you recognize what you've been called and come into contact with? This is not just any little old church. As we will see, this church has a mission to literally change the world. Do we recognize what we're part of today? In the sermon today, I want to review a little bit about the history of the Philadelphia era of the Church of God and talk just a little bit more about Mr. Armstrong. Again, there are people today that don't want to talk about him. <laughs> well, we don't want to talk about him. No, I think we need to understand where we came from, why we're here. And some might ask, well, why talk about the past? This is all done with. It's all over. Again, we have new people that have come into contact with the Church of God since Mr. Armstrong died. We've got young people that have never seen the man, never heard the man. There are critics on the Internet and in the press that put down Mr. Armstrong. They put down the Church of God. We have former members that have drifted off, and they have some very negative things to say on Facebook, some of these other places. We also have uh, Church of God groups that want to ignore and forget Mr. Armstrong, and ignore and forget what we taught over the years. They're embarrassed. They just want to leave it alone. They want to join the Protestant mainstream, and they have in many cases. But I'd like you to look at a couple of scriptures as we get started and go to Second Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> I'm using this as a foundation, and you might say you're also using it as an excuse. <laughs> but notice what Peter is saying here. He talks about adding to your faith, starting there in verse 5, but down in verse 10. So therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Do your part to make your calling and election sure, so that you don't stumble. Verse 12, he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. 
So Peter's not making any excuses for going back over fundamentals like we heard in the sermonette today. Yes, I think it's right, but as long as I'm in this tent, as long as I'm physically alive, Peter says, uh, to stir you up by reminding you of what you're part of, of why you're here, of where you come from and where we're going. Down in verse 16, he said, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw Jesus Christ. We saw him after he came out of the grave. We heard him speak. We watched his miracles. We were there. You know, Mr. Ames has been around a long time. Mr. Weston's been around a long time. I've been around a long time. We were eyewitnesses to the growth and development of the church. We were eyewitnesses to the trials and tribulations that the church of God has gone through, as many of you have been. You've been there, done that. You've seen these things. Uh, And it's up to us to convey some of these memories of what it was like and what happened over the years and why some of these things happened. We were eyewitnesses to these things. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 3. Peter is talking about remembering, talking about remembering. He says, Beloved, now I write this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. We never want to forget what we've been through. Never want to forget what you came out of if you came out of a Protestant or Catholic church or an atheistic background. Never forget those things. Why did you leave? Why did you come to the church of God? What have you learned? Why are you here today? He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. He said, in the last days, things are going to get very challenging. We've got an Internet that goes all over the world, and you can pop stuff on there, and whether it's true or not, people read it. And a lot of people believe what they read, whether it's true or not. But we've got to be able to get through these things and stand firm whenever we hear some stuff that we may not appreciate or, or, or like. Another scripture, maybe just jotted down, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul says there, to know those who labor among you, to appreciate those who labor among you, to respect their experience, to expect to uh, appreciate what they've been through whenever they're telling you something. You know, a lot of times as young people, you know, my dad learned a lot when I went to college. I learned to appreciate things that he was telling me (laughs) that I didn't think he knew about or whatever, but he'd been there and done that as a teenager. You know, as older people speak, we need to listen. Because as young people, sometimes we feel, well, you're, you're out of touch. You're an older generation. You don't know what it's like. Well, things have changed to a degree. But some things about human nature never change. I remember telling the boys one time, I said, watch this little kid that lives up the street. I said, if you hang around him, you're going to get in trouble. 
Well, Dad, how do you know? How do you know? I would see him in a playground when I would come home about 11.30, 12 o'clock at night after visiting. He was up there by himself with one or two other kids at 11, 12 o'clock. And he was like 12 years old, 13 years old. He got in trouble. But the boys said, well, how do you know, Dad? <laughs> I was a kid once. And I know what the kids were doing in high school that were, you know, 15, 16, 17 years of age, and they were out at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. I think when Dr. Scott graduated from high school, there was a kid that, a couple of kids got killed in an auto accident about the senior prom, something like that. And I asked the boy, I said, How, what time was it when they were killed? I don't know, about 3 o'clock in the morning. What are kids doing out at 3 o'clock in the morning, driving around? I think they've been drinking and maybe hit a bridge or something like that. That's what happens. That's what happens whenever we're out at that time of night with a bunch of other kids because somebody will dare you to do something or get busy doing something else and you forget about what you're doing. Paul said, know those who labor among you. Get to know them. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul relates his background. I was this, I was that, this is where I came from. You know, one of the reasons that we put the Behind the Work film together for the feast this year, where uh, Mr. Ames and Mr. Weston and I were interviewed, was so you could learn a little bit about these people that talk to you on the Sabbath, that make presentations, that write articles, to know where they're coming from. And Paul wasn't bragging. He was just saying, look, this is where I come from. This is my background. And we were trying to share with you how we came into the church, what brought us here. It would be exciting to interview about 10 or 15 others of you because <laughs> everybody will have their stories. And it's interesting how they overlap in many cases, how God got our attention. In terms of Mr. Armstrong, very quickly, Mr. Armstrong was a human being. He was a human being. He wasn't perfect. But then who is perfect? Dr. Meredith wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect. Now, Mr. Ames may be more perfect because he's been around longer. <laughs> Mr. Weston may be both perfect because he is where he is. <laughs> no, none of us are perfect, but just think about it for a minute. If somebody comes up, well, he had this problem or that problem, maybe Mr. Armstrong. Was Abraham without problems? He went to Pharaoh with a very beautiful wife. He said, well, she's just my sister. Because he didn't want the Pharaoh knocking him off to take his wife. Was Moses perfect? He got carried a little, away a little bit one time, and he did not give credit, God credit for something. He was not allowed to go into the promised land. Yeah, you know, we talk a lot about um, uh, <clears throat> uh, the name is not going to come. Where there's rebellion against Moses, you take too much on your shoulders. But there are about 300 people with the rebellion. Did Moses have a tendency <laughs> to take a little bit too much on his shoulders? Usually, there's a reason by some, why something happens. But God then corrected those who took it on themselves to, cor to uh, correct the problem. What about David? 
David was a man after God's own heart. Was he perfect? He committed adultery. He lusted, committed adultery, and then plotted the murder of the woman's husband. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, filled with wisdom. Then he married 700 wives and 300 concubines. He must have been looking for trouble. (laughs) I mean, God has used imperfect people, but to perfect them in the process. Peter led the early church. But Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. See, he wasn't perfect, but God was working with him. So we need to be careful when somebody points out a flaw, because usually when you point to somebody, you've got three fingers pointing back. So we just need to realize that if somebody's perfect, I'm sorry if I've offended you. If you eat only organic food and drink distilled water, and uh, some of these other things in an attempt to be perfect. I'm not running down things we need to do to to be healthy, but we might be a little self-righteous too if we think, well, this is going to get us into the kingdom if we do all these very special things. I don't want to belabor the point, but the point I'm making is that Mr. Armstrong wasn't perfect, Dr. Meredith wasn't, none of us are, but God has chosen to use individuals. He's chosen to use individuals. Mr. Armstrong, uh, Dr. Meredith had made the comment a number of times, is we don't worship Mr. Armstrong, but what we want to do is recognize what God used him to do. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the sermon today. Mr. Armstrong was a self-educated advertising man. He was, as a young man, upwardly mobile. He wanted to climb. He wanted to do the best that he could do. Um, he was concerned about his image, the way he dressed and so on. Read his autobiography. Uh, <clears throat> he was not overly religious. He came from sort of a Quaker background, but he was not overly religious, which I think was probably a benefit to him. When he started reading the Bible, he didn't have a lot of preconceived ideas what the scriptures might say. He could just read it for what it was. He could see it for what it was. He was challenged by his wife over the Sabbath. She learned about the Sabbath from a Church of God neighbor. He was challenged by a young sister-in-law, probably about 19 years of age, first year of college. She knew everything. She said, Herbert, if you don't believe in evolution, you're just stupid. Now, that was a challenge. And read about it again in volume one of the autobiography. But he spent a number of months uh, looking into these challenges. Um, And at the end of that study period, he came to the conclusion his wife was right about the Sabbath, because he was looking into this and that and history and Bible and everything else. She was right about the Sabbath. And the woman, the young woman, was wrong that you're not stupid if you don't believe in evolution. He found many reasons for not believing in it. But God used him to look into the Bible and to prove some things. During his study, he noticed Matthew 16 and verse 18. Let's turn to that quickly. 
Now, the reason for going through this is we need to understand our history. We need to understand how these things developed, how the church developed, how it began in this particular age. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I say unto you, and they were discussing, Christ had asked the disciples, who am I? He said, I also say to you that you are Peter. The Greek here is Petros, meaning a a little, there's a Petra, Petros, a little pebble. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. That rock is Jesus Christ. So he's going to be building on his own teachings on his own examples and so on. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mr. Armstrong read that and he realized if the Bible is true, then that church ought to be around someplace. If if the Bible is true, we should be able to see it, find it somewhere. He also came across the scripture in Exodus 31, verses 13 through 17, where it talks about the Sabbath is a sign forever. The Sabbath is a sign forever. You know, when Mr. Dukach read this scripture, he said, well, it's not a sign for us today. These were some of the things that were just thrown out, and people bought into these things. The Bible said it's a sign forever. So Mr. Armstrong began looking around for a church that kept the Sabbath, if the Sabbath is a sign forever. He's looking around for a church that kept the Ten Commandments, because that is commanded in the Bible. And had the name Church of God. The Church of God is mentioned about 12 times in the New Testament as the name of the church. Not Baptist Church, not Methodist Church, not Catholic Church, not Pentecostal Church, but the Church of God. If you go to 1 Corinthians, let me give you the scriptures. You can check them later. But I encourage you to do these things so that you know what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Paul writes to the Church of God at Corinth. To the church of God at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32, he talks again about the church of God. 10.32, then verse, or chapter 11, verse 22, talks again about the church of God. In chapter 15, verse 9, I think there he mentions he persecuted the church of God. And about nine other places in the New Testament. So Mr. Armstrong read these things, what's called Church of God. So he started looking around for Church of God. And he found some up in Oregon. In terms of the Sabbath, Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Exodus 31, it's a sign forever. Luke 4.16, Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath as his custom was. Now some people say, well, it's just his custom, so we don't have to do it today. He was taught to keep the Sabbath by his parents, by their example. Acts 13, several different verses there. Verse 14, then 42 to 44. The early church was keeping the Sabbath. The early church was keeping the Sabbath, not Sunday. This is after the resurrection. They were still keeping the Sabbath. Acts 17, verse 2, Paul says, He kept the Sabbath as his custom was. And then he talks about following him as he follows Jesus Christ. 
So all you have to do is read the New Testament. You realize the early church was keeping the Sabbath. It wasn't changed. You know, the Catholics basically tell you that uh, if the, the Protestants are actually following the Catholics if they keep Sunday because we, the Catholic Church, have changed the Sabbath to Sunday. So these are things if you prove to yourself, you're going to know what you believe. You're going to know. So his, his, his search, Mr. Armstrong's search, led him to the Seventh-day Adventist Church at first because they kept the Sabbath. You know, they didn't keep the holy days, but they kept the Sabbath. But he finally determined that a little group called the Church of God had more of the biblical truth, using that principle, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. So that was where he wound up. He and Mrs. Armstrong then began associating with this Church of God group up in Eugene, Oregon in the 1920s. In the 1920s. Then later, we learned that these people up in Oregon had links to Sabbath-keeping church, a Sabbath-keeping church eventually back in Newport, Rhode Island. That church was started by a Sabbath-keeper, Simon Mumford, or Stephen Mumford and his wife, who came over from England in 1664. So about, uh, what, about 34 years or something like that after the pilgrims landed. But these Sabbath keepers, it was Stephen Mumford and his wife, and they were in their early 20s. They weren't aged people. He was a, um, <clears throat> a merchant, uh, became an influential member there in the uh, Newport uh, area. We found out later then that the Newport people were connected with Sabbath keepers in England, around London, around the 1500s. And then you look back further into history. Gildas, I believe, was a um, British writer around 500 A.D. He said, we know that the gospel came to England in the first century within the lifespan of the apostles. The Catholics will tell you today that uh, England was converted by some monks that came with St. Augustine uh, about the 6th century. They don't tell you that the gospel came to England in the first century. And they were Sabbath keepers. So just understanding a little bit about history, I think, will be very helpful. But what were the biblical truths that Mr. Armstrong came across that eventually became part of the basic teachings of the living church of God. Because we're here because he came to certain conclusions, and then these were added to as we got a little bit older. I've got ten of them. We'll see if we can get through them all. If not, uh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> Number one, and I've lumped three together here, the, the seventh-day Sabbath, the name church of God, and the Ten Commandments. These were biblical truths that the Protestants, for, for the most part, had lost. You know, there are people preaching today that you don't need to teach the Ten Commandments. They've all been done away with. All you have to do is love everybody. But that's not what the Bible says. So number one would be the biblical truths have been restored, Seventh-day Sabbath, the name Church of God, and the Ten Commandments. You know, we have a booklet entitled, Which Day is the Christian Sabbath? that goes into the background of this. I would encourage you to read through that. 
Also, Samuel Bakayoki, he was a Seventh-day Adventist scholar, wrote a book entitled From Sabbath to Sunday. He wrote it as a Ph.D. thesis when he was a student at the Gregorian Institute in Rome, a Catholic institution. And they gave him a degree, even though he proved that (laughs) the Catholics changed the Sabbath to Sunday. Of course, they liked that part of it. But he gives you the proof. Basically, the change over was in the second, third centuries when Gentiles were coming into the church. They didn't want to do anything that was associated with the Jews. uh, So they began pushing a different day. The second biblical truth we'll talk about is the true gospel of the kingdom of God. The true gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. The Seventh-day Adventist churches and the Church of God that Mr. Armstrong came in contact with were preaching a gospel about the three angels' message. The three angels' message. If you'll turn to Revelation 14, you'll pick up that third angels' message. Verse 9, it says, Then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, uh, verse 10, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out with full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. In other words, if you buy into the message of the beast, you're going to burn in hell. That's not a very exciting gospel. (laughs) It's a warning. It's a warning. But that's what they were focused on. The gospel for mainstream Christianity supposedly is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, where it mentions that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And this was a scripture that was used by some of the young men that took over the Worldwide Church of God as being the gospel. And I talked with the young fellow that was in college with us. Uh, and I asked him one afternoon, I said, I'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, what, what's the gospel? He said, well, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He bought into this new gospel that was being preached. And yet, if you go back to, math, to Mark chapter 1, verse 14, now, these should be memory scriptures. You should be very familiar with these things. But we're nailing down teaching. Jesus did not come with a gospel about, if you believe the message of the beast, you're going to burn in hell. That was part of a warning message. But notice in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. The beginning of the the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. About a coming kingdom that's going to be set up on this earth that you can be part of. That you can reign with Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does not mention that aspect of the gospel because he was dealing with an issue of whether or not there's a resurrection. But if you go to Acts chapter 20, where Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus, he talks about the kingdom of God. Last chapter of the book of Acts, where he's kind of winding up where 
at least where the book of Acts winds up, he's talking again about the kingdom of God. When I first heard that gospel of the kingdom of God, I grew up believing I'm going to go to heaven. I didn't understand what we're going to do there except sit on a cloud and play a harp and do some of these other things. When I heard about the gospel of the kingdom of God, I said, wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Because I never heard it. And Mr. Armstrong said numerous times, the true gospel has not been preached in over 1,900 years. And that really burned Protestant preachers. What do you mean? What have we been preaching? We've been preaching about Jesus and that God loves you. But I never heard a gospel about a coming kingdom of God that I could be part of, that was going to be set up on this earth. Mr. Armstrong read what the Bible actually says and began to preach those things. It was called His Coming Kingdom of God or His Wonderful World Tomorrow or His Gospel. I want to read you something from the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. This is chapter 15. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter because it talks about what the beliefs were in the early church. And Gibbon was not a fan of Christianity. He was not a fan of Christianity. He's writing historically what the, the doctrines were of the church. His words, The ancient and popular doctrine of the millennium was intimately associated or connected with the second coming of Jesus Christ that Christ, with a triumphant band of saints and the elect who escaped death or had been miraculously revived, would reign upon the earth for a thousand years until the time appointed for the last and general resurrection. So pleasing was this hope to the mind of believers that the new Jerusalem, the seat of the blissful kingdom, was quickly ordained with all the gayest colors of the imagination. The assurance of such a millennium a thousand-year reign of the saints on this earth was inculcated by a succession of the fathers from Justin Martyr to Arrhenius, who conversed with the immediate disciples of the, apostle, of the apostles. Though it might not be universally received, it appears to have been the reigning sentiment of Orthodox believers. In other words, the believers in the early church believed in a coming kingdom of God for a thousand years on this earth. But when the edifice of the church was almost completed, the temporary support, that is the teaching about the millennium, was laid aside. The doctrine of Christ's reign on earth was at first treated as a profound allegory. Oh, it's a very deep story <laughs> that we don't fully understand. It was then considered a doubtful and useless opinion and at length was rejected as the absurd invention of heresy and fanaticism. And the Catholic Church began claiming it was the kingdom of God on earth. This is what happened to this fundamental teaching that literally drove the growth of the early church. Again, we have a booklet dealing with the, what is the true gospel. If you've not read it, read it and make sure you know what the true gospel is. Yes, God does love us. Yes, Jesus Christ died for our sins. But he is also going to come back to this earth and bring a kingdom that we're going to be part of that's literally going to change the world, which is something that you're not going to hear 
in most Protestant Catholic churches today. And this is why people came, why people have come to the church, because they realize this is different. They're preaching actually from the Bible. Okay, number three, the restored truth about the the, uh, holy days and the pagan holidays. The restored truth about holy days and the pagan holidays. When you read through Leviticus 23, it says they are commanded until Christ returns. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it says they're commanded forever. They're commanded forever. You find in the New Testament that the Jesus Christ and the apostles in the early church kept the holy days. In John chapter 7, Jesus told his his disciples there, you go up to the feast, I'm not coming yet, but then he went up and preached the feast. He said, you go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, let us keep the feast. He's writing about the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. Here's a New Testament command to keep the feast. It wasn't done away with. And this is what Mr. Armstrong came across, what we've been teaching for literally decades. A couple scriptures just to look at very quickly. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, these were warnings that Moses was inspired to give to the Israelites before they went into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. says, now, Israel, and he's talking not just to the Jews here, he's talking to the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you. You were commanded to keep the Sabbath, not Sunday. So don't add something to that. You were commanded to keep the biblical holy days. Don't add something to that. Just do what you've been asked to do. Go then to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Another aspect of this warning, Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, again to the 12 tribes of Israel, observe and obey all these things which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going to possess and you displace them and dwell with them here in the land, take heed to yourself. You are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I will do likewise. Oh, well, you guys have this Christmas ceremony. Now, that really looks interesting. And then the Easter ceremony that you have with the colored eggs and the kids get all involved coloring those eggs. And isn't that really a lot of fun? You know, Moses said, don't do those things. Don't be drawn into those things. And yet what we saw in the worldwide church of God, when his young men took over the church, well, there's nothing wrong with Sunday. Everybody's worshiping Jesus on that day. And Christmas is a wonderful time to get everybody together. And we're not worshiping a pagan God. We're worshiping Jesus Christ. It's amazing how history repeats itself and how many people just followed along. I remember talking with a young man who had been one of my students in Pasadena. He came through Big Sandy when we were teaching down there, and I said, what's going on out there? He said, 
They are going to change everything. They are going to change everything. I said everything. He said everything. But it wasn't being announced that way. It's, we're making administrative changes. <laughs> we're making administrative it's, it's just a little thing. And people followed along. People that had been in the church for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. I remember talking to an older lady one time, went out to visit one of the congregations there in Texas, and things were happening. And I said, how are you doing? And she said, uh, I'm doing fine because this is, God, this is the church that God called me into and this is where he's going to find me when he returns. I thought, this is not good because they're going to change everything. This is going to be a very different church than what you came into 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Maybe jot this down and look at them again. In 1, Corinthians, 1 Kings 12... Verses 26 to 33. When Rehoboam took ten tribes and headed north, said so they set up idols and they changed the feast from the seventh to the eighth month. They changed the feast from the seventh to the eighth month. Then you read later in First Kings 14, verse 16, and said that uh, Rehoboam's sin caused Israel to sin. The people just followed along. And there was never any revivals among the, 12, the, the ten tribes in the north as there was in the south in the kingdom of Judah. And the decisions that were made by some of these young fellows that took over the church that seemed to feel that they knew everything, they led thousands of people astray. I remember talking to one person, I said, after a sermon that said it's okay to eat unclean foods, there were literally lots of people went out and, and had shrimp and lobster that night. And their comment was, well, they told us we could. They told us we could. And they were just following along what they were told to do. You know, if you've proven these things to yourself, you're not going to follow along. Some things like that. Again, we have booklets on Christmas, booklets on Easter, talking about the history of these things, where they came from. Point number four, the holy days picture God's plan of salvation. The sermonette was talking about getting back to basics. And these are really some of the basics. The holy days picture the plan of God. You forget the holy days, you lose sight of the plan of God. You stop keeping the holy days, you lose sight of the plan of God. If you've not done this, you might want to do this. Read through Leviticus 23, just dot down the name of the holy day and ask yourself, does this picture a plan and a purpose? Of course it does. It pictures a plan and a purpose. What's interesting, I think I gave a sermon on this a couple months ago. The Jews keep the holy days in the Old Testament, the same as we do, that is the same days. But the Jews look backward. They look backward for the meaning. For the Jews, the Passover is when the angel passed over. Pentecost, the Jews view that as the day that the Ten Commandments were given, the law given on Sinai. 
the New Testament looks forward. The New Testament looks forward and gives the ultimate meaning of these holy days. For New Testament Christians, the Passover pictures the sacrificial lamb, the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Pentecost pictures the outpouring of God's spirit in the beginning of the New Testament church. Trumpets for the Jews pictures the beginning of ten days of uh, awe or uh, ten days of self-examination. Whereas trumpets for the New Testament Christian pictures the return of Jesus Christ. For the Jews, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles is a reminder of the temporary time they spent in the wilderness. For Christians, the New Testament uh, Feast of Tabernacles pictures the coming kingdom of God. See, when you reject the New Testament, then you have to go back to these old lessons that are there. And we need to remember the old lessons, but there's another dimension that comes with the New Testament. You know, mainstream Protestants and Catholics don't keep the holy days because they've taught that it's not required anymore. These have all been done away with. And as a result, they've lost a knowledge of God's plan. You know, I grew up in Protestant churches, never heard about a plan of God. It was just... Um, when you die, you go to heaven. That's all. <laughs> that was the plan. And then when you come in contact with the truth, it's kind of like, wow, this is incredible. But it's not being taught today. Number five, restored truth, is the authority of the Hebrew calendar and tithing. The authority of the Hebrew calendar and tithing. Now, how do we come to that? Read through Leviticus 23. It does not say to keep the Passover on uh, um, maybe March 13th. It says you keep the Passover on the 14th day at even in the first month. That's on the Hebrew calendar. Now it says at the 14th day at even. It doesn't say on the 15th. <laughs> We've got people that argue over, well, should we keep it on the 14th or the 15th? The days began in the evening. The evening of the 14th is the beginning of the 14th. And at the end of the 14th is the 15th, and it's all over by that time. But it's on the Hebrew calendar. On the first day of the seventh month is to be the Feast of Trumpets. On the uh, tenth day of the seventh month is the uh, Day of Atonement. And on the 14th day of the seventh month is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Bible tells us we've got to use the Hebrew calendar in order to figure out the holy days. And then Paul mentions in Romans, let's go there quickly, Romans chapter 3. Makes a very interesting statement. He's writing basically to a Gentile church, primarily in Rome. In Romans chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew or what profit of what is the profit of circumcision of being, of being part of the Jewish uh, traditions? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Look up the word. The oracles of God, the laws of God, the statutes of God, the teachings of the Bible. And the Jews have preserved the calendar. The Jews have preserved those things. And the Bible talks about 
calculating the holy days from the Hebrew calendar, not from the Roman calendar. What about tithing? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 14, where three tithes are mentioned. One is for the Levites in the Old Testament, or basically the church. The second is yours to keep. It's yours to keep so that you can keep the holy days. So the third tithe that is mentioned there is for the widows and the orphans. But go to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Because Paul is explaining some, some basic things here. In the first six or seven verses of Hebrews 7, Paul is talking about tithing and where it was to go and what was to happen to it. But down in verse 12, he said, but the priesthood being changed, in other words, we now have the a ministry, of necessity there is also a change in the law. What Paul is saying here is the tithes need to come to the church, not to the Levites. And the church uses that then to preach the gospel and function as a church. So number five was the authority of the Hebrew calendar and tithing. That's why we do these things, because the instructions are there. Number six is the real purpose of human life. What is the real purpose of human life? Your mainstream Christianity says your purpose of life is to go to heaven and be with God forever. Well, that would be nice, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible reveals a very different purpose. Let me just mention a couple of scriptures. Galatians, no, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says, We're made in the image of God, not in the image of a monkey, not in the image of a hippopotamus. <laughs> We've been made in the image of God. We think like God. We can think about the past, the future. We can plan. We're very different from animals. We were created to manage the earth, and we made a mess of it today. But when Christ returns, people are going to be taught how to manage the earth, how to make it blossom. You know, the Jews didn't come into the Middle East and just wave a magic wand, and all of a sudden (laughs) things start to grow. No, they had to plow, they had to plant, they had to irrigate, they had to do various things to make the earth blossom like a rose. Romans 8, chapter 14, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 15 says, We are the children of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. This is who you are. This is who we are. Children of God. Children grow up to be like their mom and dad. Your kids are going to talk like you, they're going to walk like you. They're going to have your sense of humor. If you're sarcastic, they'll be sarcastic. <laughs> We're going to grow up to be, we grow up to be like our parents. That's why God wants us to study what it's going to be like to be part of his family, to treat people with love, with gentleness, with kindness, not to change, not to quit, not to blow away. So we've been made in the image of God to become part of his family. 1 Corinthians 6, verses, verse 18, where God says, I'm a father to you, and you're my sons and daughters. 
We've been created to become part of God's family. This is why we need to develop the character and the perspective of God so that we can reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. Now, that's the purpose of life. That's the purpose of life, not just to be happy. Now, it's nice to be happy. <laughs> but, you know, if you look, what is it, the last chapter of uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Solomon's conclusion, after trying everything, he said the whole essence of the matter is to love God and to keep his commandments, to fear God. If you fear God, you're going to believe what God says. That's the whole purpose of human life. And when you do that, you will be happy. Okay, number seven. The church has a mission. The church has a mission. We read that in the scriptures. Mr. Armstrong read those things in the scriptures. And that purpose is much more than being just a social club. It's much more than just helping the poor. And there's nothing wrong with helping the poor. And it's much more than just consoling the sick or the lonely. Now, those are things that we need to do, not only as ministers and elders, but as, as members, as brothers and sisters. But the church's mission is bigger than that. It's bigger than that. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I'm going to build my church. It's going to, not going to die. It's going to be around. Revelation 2 and 3 talk about seven church eras that the church will go through. The Ephesian era was the era of the apostles. The Sardis era appears to be the people that Mr. Armstrong came in contact with back in the 20s. They had a name, but they were dead, which is a description of the Sardis era. It appears that Mr. Armstrong, when you look at his life, you look at what happened, began the Philadelphia era of the church. Talks about an open door will be there for you. Radio became big in the 20s and in the 30s. He got on radio. And his programs went out literally all over the world. We're now in a Laodicean era, which means I don't need any help. I know all the answers. Uh, we get all kinds of people come to our Tomorrow's World presentations, but they don't stay. Because, oh, there is a cost to this. We had a bishop showed up in London. He said, no. You know, I, I use Saturdays to get ready for my Sunday sermon. I can't come to church on Saturday. But he was interested. He was interested in what was being said, but it was too many other things got in the way. Mission of the church, very quickly, Mark, 14, Mark 16, 15. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The gospel that he was talking about in Mark chapter 1 was the coming kingdom of God. You know, you can't sit at home and just have your own little church. Our mission is to preach the gospel to the world. And that's, that takes a team today to do that, where we work together. Another aspect of the mission of the church, John 21, John 21, verses 15 to 17, where Jesus said to Peter, feed my flock, tend my flock, feed them, take care of them, Act as shepherds. Your shepherds don't walk around with a big stick and beat the, the sheep. <laughs> no, you, you treat the sheep gently. You treat them gently. You show them what's right. You show them what's wrong. But you do use the stick on the wolves. You use the stick on the wolves. 
You read what Paul was saying in Titus chapter 1, what an elder has to do. You've got to deal with issues. You can't just let them roll around. You've got to deal with the issues. Another aspect of the mission, Matthew 24, was to warn about future events. Many of the prophecies in the Bible are dual. There was an ancient fulfillment. There will be a future fulfillment. As we get closer to the end, people need to listen to what they're hearing. So the church's mission is much more than just a social club helping the poor and consoling the sick and lonely. Our mission statement we have published, I think there's several, there's extra copies on the the information table out in the hallway. If you don't have one of these things, you might want to take it home, put it on the refrigerator, (laughs) put it someplace where you'll see it. This is our mission. These are our marching orders. Okay, number eight, the identity of Israel, both ancient and modern. The understanding the identity of ancient Israel as well as modern Israel, because these Prophecies are dual, and what happened to the Israelites is going to happen to us. They went into captivity because they forgot God. They rejected God, turned away, and they were punished for that. We have been blessed because of the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but we are also going to reap the consequences. And it says in Deuteronomy 28.20, it says it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come suddenly when we're not expecting it. And we need to be ready for these things. It's interesting that this whole concept of the identity of Israel was rejected and thrown away as the changes took over in the worldwide church of God. One of the reasons it was rejected said there's no evidence. It's just a fairy tale. Another reason it was rejected was because, well, it's racist, and it makes one set of people better than somebody else. So we need to get rid of it. These are both gross misunderstandings. They are gross misunderstandings. I would encourage you, if you've not done it, go start in Genesis 12 and get to Genesis 49. And notice how the promises were made and developed to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then to Joseph's sons. And you wind up in Genesis 48, where Ephraim and Manasseh were to become a nation and a company of nations. The Jews have never fulfilled that. There are only two peoples on the face of the earth that have fulfilled those things. And in Genesis 49, it gives you the characteristics of what an end-time tribe of Israel would look like, each one of them. They'll have certain characteristics. You should be able to look back and see how history has fulfilled these prophecies. And you find the same thing written in Deuteronomy 33. So it's there twice. Understanding the identity of Israel allows the church to warn modern Israelite nations about what is coming down the road. Turn to Second Peter, chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one. He was talking about being eyewitnesses. Verse nineteen. He says, "We also have a, the prophetic word confirmed." And the Old King James says, "We have a more sure word of prophecy." Uh, You know, we're a little self-conscious maybe sometimes using this scripture. But Mr. Armstrong had a more sure word of prophecy. The church of God has had a more sure word of prophecy. Understanding who the Germans are today. Understanding who the Chinese are today. Understanding who some of these other nations are. And when we understand this key, we can say certain things very powerfully. 
You know, Mr. Armstrong said Germany's going to come back. He was talking to people right after World War II. Germany had been bombed into smithereens. You know, I saw postcards in Berlin when I was over there. They were raising potatoes outside the Reichstag because that was the only place where there was open soil because they were starving. And Mr. Armstrong saying Germany is going to come back and lead Europe. And that's exactly where Germany is today. And he was saying years ago, the United States, Britain, some of these other Israelite nations are going to go down the tubes. How could you say that unless you understood who they were? You know, Jesus Christ made no apologies. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 8, Jesus told his disciples, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't say go find them. He said go to them. James chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He wasn't just sending an email off into ether space. He wrote it because he knew where they were. If you read Josephus, Josephus, he wrote in the first century, he said that the 12 tribes or the 10 tribes are beyond the Euphrates now. And they're at the become a great multitude. They knew in the first century where they were. And then these people migrated up into Europe. So the guys in the worldwide church of God said, well, there's no evidence. You know, there's all a bunch of fairy stories. They're not telling the truth. There is evidence where these people went. The blessings went with them, but those blessings are going to leave. Those blessings are going to be taken away. In terms of racist, uh, these arguments ignore the evidence and they ignore the inclusiveness of God's plan. Read through Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles had their own special apostle. And he says that uh, Israel has blinded, has been blinded, the Israelites have been blinded, so the Gentiles can be added to the body. They can be added to the body. God's plan is inclusive. In Galatians 3, verse 29, he says, Gentiles who are Christians are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises. They're added to the family of God. They're going to be heirs to the promises. And then in Galatians 6, verse 16, he talks about spiritual Israelites. He says, you guys are part of spiritual Israel. It's not racist. It's inclusive. God has a plan for everyone. Roger Rusk, he was a professor of physics at University of Tennessee. He was a brother of Dean Rusk, who was Secretary of State under John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Wrote a book entitled The Other Side of the World. It's about the identity of Israel. He made the statement, the time has come in history. The time has come in the history of the world when God's people are going to know who they are. I think we may have a role to play in making that happen. Because hardly anybody else is talking about this. Even some of the churches of God have drifted away, and they don't want to talk that much about it. Because there's no evidence, they heard that from somebody else. And because it's racist, they heard that from somebody else. It's none of the above. 
It's a very powerful thing. Let's wind up here. Number nine, another truth has been restored. Only a few are called now. Only a few are called now. The world believes God is trying to save the world. And if you don't hear and respond to what you heard, you're going to burn in hell, baby. Now, that's a wonderful message, but it's wrong. It's a wrong view of God, a wrong view of the gospel, a wrong view of the mission of the church, and a wrong view of the plan of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28, Paul says, Not many wise, not many mighty are called, but God is calling the foolish things, or the things that people think are foolish, to confound the wise. John 6, 44 and John 6, 65, Jesus said, You must be called to understand the truth. Only those that God is calling are going to understand the truth. And a calling is a capacity to understand the truth of God. That's why you can't convert your friends and relatives and other people on your street. They're not going to see it. John 15 and verse 16. You might want to jot that down, read it, and think about it. Jesus said to his disciples, I have chosen you. I've chosen you. Put your name in there. You're not here by accident. Well, I wouldn't be here if my mom and dad weren't here, but uh, you know, I can't wait till I get older. No, you are here being given an understanding of the truth because God is calling you. He's opening your minds. What are you going to do with that? You've been called for a purpose, to do the work, and to prepare for the coming kingdom of God. Number 10 is an ultimate restoration is in the future. There is an ultimate restoration that's going to come upon this earth. Acts 3, verses 19 to 21. Christ is going to come back and restore all things. The law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. People are going to learn the truth. They're going to see their teachers. Isaiah 11:9 says the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the earth. This is what's coming. This is the purpose of human life. This is why we're here. Let's conclude. Brother, you and I are being given an opportunity to understand the plan of God today. The world is not being given that opportunity, but you are. A chance to understand the plan of God is revealed in the Scriptures. That understanding has come through the restored biblical truths that the church has been teaching literally for decades. We've been given an incredible privilege. And my advice to you this afternoon is don't blow it. Don't blow it. Don't let it slip through your fingers. Grab a hold of it. Brethren, our moment of time is right now. Our moment of time is right now. To hear, to understand, to do something with that. I would encourage you to prove what is true and hold on to that truth that's been restored. Mr. Armstrong, Dr. Meredith, and others have said, don't believe me, believe your Bible. Look it up for yourself. Look it up for yourself. Brother, not everyone who thinks they're a Christian is going to be in the kingdom of God. You can read that in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 to 23. But we're told in Matthew 24, verse 13, He that endures to the end, those that hang in there, 
They don't get upset because maybe the minister looked at them the wrong way and they, he wouldn't even realize he was looking at anybody. <laughs> and don't, don't let these little things blow you away. Hang on to what you know is right. Hang on to what you know is truth. You need to know what you believe. You need to prove what is true. Hold on to that. This is your moment of time. What are you doing with that moment of time? The decisions that you make now are really up to you, just like the song. Don't miss out on your calling to be in the kingdom of God. Remember these restored truths.